From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. Your body's tissues need an adequate supply of oxygen to function. When tissue is injured, it requires even more oxygen to survive. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy can be used to help the healing by increasing the amount of oxygen your blood can carry. On today's program, Dr. Tom Shives joins me as we learn about Mayo Clinic's hyperbaric oxygen therapy program from the outgoing director. Later in the program, we'll hear how cold cap therapy can prevent chemotherapy-related hair loss. And we'll learn about the new transatlantic partnership between Mayo Clinic and Oxford University. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy, also known as HBOT, involves breathing pure oxygen in a pressurized room or in a tube. And it's well-established treatment for decompression sickness, which is a hazard of scuba diving. But that's not all it's good for. It can be used to treat serious infections, bubbles of air in your blood vessels, and I think that's what happens when you go a little deep in the when you're scuba diving. It can also be used to treat wounds that won't heal, even carbon monoxide poisoning. In a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber, the air pressure is increased to three times higher than normal air pressure. Under these conditions, your lungs can gather more oxygen than would be possible breathing pure oxygen at normal air pressure. Your blood carries the oxygen throughout your body to help fight bacteria and promote healing. Here to discuss HBOT, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, is the medical director of Mayo Clinic's hyperbaric and altitude medicine program, Dr. Paul Kloss. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kloss. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Kloss. So uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, hyperbaric oxygen, has been around for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, isn't that what we used to call the iron lung years ago, or is that a little No, different? not the iron lung. The iron lung assisted, it was like a mechanical ventilator uh, without intubation, uh, and only the bot, uh, lower part of the um, thorax was in that yeah. environment. Hyperbaric oxygen has been around, um, compressed air has been around for centuries. Uh, compressed oxygen uh, from a uh, use with diving and, and um, medical uses about 50 years. It evolved out of deep sea diving for uh, treating decompression illness and then evolved into um, medical realm about in the 1940s, 1950s. But Mayo hasn't been a player in the field for, for that long, have they? It's, how long ago was it that we got the hyperbaric facility? Uh, almost uh, 10 years to the date, um, not quite the date. We we came up in um, 2008, uh, um, St. Patrick's Day in March. <laughs> how did you get interested in this field? Um, did it choose you? Well, no, it, um, it's, if you want the whole story, um, basically I was an airport rat hung around airports. Uh, uh, I had a um, real love for aviation. So in um, uh, uh, high school and college, I uh, was involved in sports like uh, skydiving, hang gliding, uh, uh, eventually. And lived uh, to talk about it. Oh, <laughs> I think uh, I know something else he's going to do when he retires. <laughs> um, and then um, uh, 
uh, scuba diving and, and those kind of hobbies uh, type stuff. And so then when I joined the Mayo staff in order to um, uh, kind of uh, facilitate uh, being around uh, patients that had similar interests, I started doing um, uh, uh, commercial uh, aviation exams, uh, pilot exams as an FAA examiner. And it was through that then uh, that the preventive medicine uh, division had wanted to put in a um, physiology lab, uh, hyperbarics and hypobarics altitude, pick up with um, Mayo's tradition of aviation uh, science. More oxygen and less oxygen, hypobaric? Correct. Uh, prior to World War II, the institution uh, played a real critical role in oxygen uh, supplementation for high-altitude flying, as well as the um, pressure suit for um, uh, fighter pilots and the likes. And Anyway, that all took place in the 50s or uh, 40s and 50s, and then um, uh, laid quiescent for all these years. And uh, we eventually breathed life back into it through um, clinical hyperbarics. And so, you were uh, were you part of the driving force behind getting a hyperbaric facility at Mayo? I wouldn't say a driving force. We had leadership that uh, were retired Air Force, Dr. Hickman. Uh, he was instrumental in, in promoting it. It was an effort that had been pursued for quite a few years. In fact, another cardiologist, Dr. Alfred Beauvais, uh, he was on staff in cardiology in 1970s. Uh, he pursued it, but uh, there just wasn't an institutional appetite for it. Um, the only claim to fame I might have is that I kind of shamed the institution into it. Um, they, um, <clears throat> as we went to the various committees, they asked us, well, well, if it's so good, why doesn't Mayo not already have it? Oh, wow. That was a recurring, uh, it was, it was a recurring response. So we took the, um, 2004, um, honor roll list from U.S. News World Report and showed them that of the 14 institutions of which Mayo was second. At all the of time, the, now first. Well, <laughs> I'll get to that part of the story. <laughs> of the 14 institutions, Mayo was the only one of the 14 honor rollees that didn't have hyperbarics available. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, several years after we became operational, then Mayo uh, le- leapt to um, first uh, in the um, U.S. World Report as far as the number one institution. And so we take a pride and some credit for that. All because of hyperbaric oxygen. Well, there's a lot of good, a lot of reasons. <laughs> so how does, I understand the bubbles in the bloodstream, the bubbles of air, but how does it make a wound heal? There's theories and then uh, there's evolving theories. Uh, the tissues that are at risk aren't receiving enough oxygen. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. as Tom knows from his surgical service or practice, that... Um, He's just telling you that none of, not many of my wounds heal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's partly because we treat a lot of patients who have peripheral vascular disease, atherosclerosis, diabetes, and, and they're tough. They, right. they are, the blood supply is not very good, so the wounds are d- difficult to get to heal. Yeah, so the um, both the large vessels and then in the diabetic patients, uh, and we also see in our radiation injury patients, the small microvessels are, are um, very limited. So the question is, how does oxygen uh, delivery help the wounds heal? Well, those tissues are struggling. They're at risk of infection. White blood cells don't work with uh, good or with inadequate levels of oxygen. The uh, tissues uh, aren't receiving the stimulus that they need from uh, the growth factors. And hyperbaric oxygen dissolves uh, large amounts of oxygen in the blood, fluid part of the blood, not the red blood cells, and can get into those areas that are marginally perfused. It won't revive dead tissue. It won't revive tissue that's truly ischemic without any flow. 
but if we can squeeze some fluid part of the blood into those tissues, uh, it has the hope of regenerating uh, or re- rejuvenating some of the tissues that are just on the margin. Uh, tell us about the, the facility and uh, who is likely to come there. We know it's somebody who has uh, a, a problem with blood flow um, in most instances. But if you go there as a patient, uh, how, does the, how does it work? Well, um, again, going back to um, convincing the um, institutional leadership that not only did we need it, but we could do it in a clinical sense, one of the questions we kept having was, well, if people have these terribly unsightly um, surgical wounds and, and um, non-healing uh, uh, tissue from radiation injury, which are really disfiguring, and, and um, you have to have a strong stomach even as a physician to, to really um, see them day in and day out. The question is, how are you going to take a, um, a patient, let alone a room full of patients, and have them exposed to this oxygen? Uh, and so the misconception is that it's the oxygen uh, surrounding the patient that is the benefit, and actually what it is is it's the oxygen that's uh, breathed in, dissolved uh, in the circulation through the heart and lungs, and then transported to the tissues. So um, all the patients uh, remain, uh, their surgical wounds are dressed. Uh, they're like uh, patients in any waiting area, except we take precautions from a fire st- standpoint. Uh, they get out of their street clothes, which are predominantly polyester-based um, mm-hmm. fuel for fire, and uh, they wear cotton blends, which are less uh, uh, fire-prone. Uh, so, Have you ever had a fire? No. Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, well, and it's because of the increased oxygen in the atmosphere that you're concerned about that. Correct. Um, uh, that uh, supports a tremendous uh, um, uh, increase in combustibility. Uh, oxygen isn't uh, explosive, but it uh, supports combustion. All right. Our guest is the medical director of Mayo Clinic's hyperbaric and altitude medicine program. We're talking about hyperbaric oxygen. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking more with Dr. Klaus. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Dr. Paul Klaus, and he is Medical Director of Mayo Clinic's Hyperbaric and Altitude Medicine Program. So you told us, Dr. Klaus, that you were interested in flying and, did you say skydiving? Yeah. You you used to skydive? Yeah. You do still? No, I gave that up when I got married. (laughs) (laughs) You've told us about the the uh, program, the hyperbaric oxygen facility. Uh, if someone comes there, they have to come daily, right? And how many days, how many times is the usual treatment regimen? It depends on what we're treating. Uh, if it's carbon monoxide, it could be a single treatment. Uh, but typically we treat uh, three times, so that's uh, over a 24-hour period. So that, that, that together with air bubbles uh, for decompression or medical air gas embolism, those are our shortest uh, treatment regimens. To get the benefit for healing uh, poor um, wounds and diabetes or radiation injury, it's anywhere from 20 to 40 treatments, which translates into um, anywhere from six to eight weeks of uh, Monday through Friday treatments. It takes that long for the body to be stimulated uh, and to develop that response. The the beauty of it is that investment in in those uh, series of treatments is that the tissues that are healed um, have a higher level of, of um, circulation to them that persists for years. Really? How often do you see somebody with carbon monoxide poisoning? 
unfortunately, we don't have as many referrals as uh, there may be patients that are out there, and some of that has to do with the um, the uh, benefits of it are uh, are questioned in the literature in regards to um, how many patients would benefit should all of them uh, be treated. Uh, how serious does the carbon monoxide poisoning need to be before it's beneficial to receive the hyperbaric oxygen? So. For carbon monoxide, there isn't uniform um, uh, agreement across uh, institutions, including ours, as to um, which patients should be treated. And how do these people usually get poisoned? It's usually in the um, uh, transition times of the years uh, where um, people are using unventilated furnaces uh, Uh, and the likes. We treated one individual, a young college uh, student, um, who um, survived where uh, uh, he and a number of um, individuals, including his girlfriend, had gone to a um, fish house uh, for the weekend and had a poorly ventilated uh, uh, heater. Uh, the young woman died, and he uh, was severely uh, uh, poisoned, and we treated him, and he did well. Hmm. I have heard stories about athletes who use hyperbaric chambers for recovery after, you know, they're professional athletes. Is that the same thing that we're talking about here? Well, it is, and, and um, it's not uh, voodoo medicine either. Uh, there's uh, good science behind uh, hyperbaric oxygen reco- um, aiding recovery of injured muscles. In fact, training is is a um, systematic injury of muscles, I believe, isn't it, Tom? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the recovery. And uh, you all you have to do is follow the money uh, around the country in the um, Middle East and, and um, England and uh, Scotland, Ireland, where horse ra- racing is huge. Um, the same manufacturer that builds our medical chambers uh, sells equal number of uh, chambers that are used in the racing industry to um, not only heal um, injuries to tendons and the likes that would otherwise put a racehorse down, but to um, uh, increase their performance uh, as far as training. So there's a huge industry in, in the veterinarian practice, and so um, uh, and some of the things that we're doing um, uh, were first discovered there and now we're translating into um, medicine. What about the nurse that is in there helping? Do they end up having health benefits for being part of this? Um, it's possible that they only breathe oxygen for very small uh, amounts of time. What we do to um, uh, lower their risk of decompression illness is that on the um, final portion, what we call the ascent, uh, where the pressure is being relieved, they breathe oxygen for five to ten minutes. So they do get hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Um, throughout the rest of the exposure, they're actually scuba divers, and so they have the risk of decompression illness. Mm-hmm. So they're absorbing nitrogen, and uh, they have limited uh, periods of time, minutes, uh, that they can be at those depths. And so the practice is really um, uh, exciting from the standpoint that you're managing a population of employees with health risks versus patients with health benefits. And I have actually been in this hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Yep, I well, went you were there. Training. No, they <laughs> went during. A, you had an open house, I remember, and uh, I got to go in there and see it. And it actually looks like a little submarine capsule. It's. I, I was surprised that that's just what it looks like. How many people or how many patients can you fit in there? We have um, two uh, what we call treatment rooms, two uh, large medical locks. Technically, we can uh, we could squeeze 12 individuals into each side, so we could we could treat theoretically 24 individuals at one dive. 
realistically, our patients have a number of uh, positioning needs, and so we use larger recliners and gurneys. So we treat anywhere from uh, uh, four to six patients in one room, so typically we'll treat 10 to 12 patients at a time. You call it a dive? We try not to. When we started the program, <laughs> when we started the program, uh, although it's come out of deep sea uh, treatments and everywhere around the world, they're called dives. We tried to make it uh, mainstream medicine and, and call it treatment or therapy. But uh, pretty soon, even our patients are do- calling it dives. And you know, I, I, part of the issue with this for me, uh, actually, now I'm a believer. But you never know if I if I send you somebody who has difficulty healing a wound, and you give them 20 treatments of hyperbaric oxygen. You never know for sure if it was the hyperbaric oxygen or the wound might have healed on its own. How how do you measure the success of what you're doing? Well, you're touching on a real important thing for medicine in general and in our our practice as well, is that we need to um, uh, always strive for better and better evidence-based outcomes. And so... uh, Hyperbaric oxygen has that evidence for diabetic wounds. Uh, there's been uh, randomized controlled trials that show uh, statistically uh, better improvements, 40 to 60 uh, percent uh, better improvement in the treated groups. Uh, are you seeing more and more patients? Is your facility busier and busier as the years have gone on? Gradually, we, we grow by 5 or 10 percent uh, per year uh, with volume, but we're really subject to individual practitioners, surgeons like yourself, who see it as a benefit and refer us patients. And so uh, should we see you retire in the future, uh, a number of patients are going to go without. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you had mentioned as you came in, you are getting ready to retire. So over the course of... Uh, no, no, wait a minute, he can't go before I go. <laughs> 2008... Um, um, until this, till till now, what has changed in the hyperbaric chamber type of thing, or what is it that you're most proud of, or will look back as accomplishment? Um, building a safe and effective program, and and um, uh, bringing on not only the paramedical staff uh, trained to do hyperbarics, but um, colleagues. Uh, I was able to. Um, the institution supported me to go off and, and do a um, essentially um, in two years what would account to a one-year fellowship. I did that in 2004. But then we um, grandfathered several of our um, colleagues into um, board certification. So myself and uh, three or four uh, rest of us are, are board certified. So that would be my, my greatest accomplishment. Well, you know what? Congratulations on your upcoming retirement. Thank you. And thanks so much. We've learned a lot about hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and uh, I certainly use it. I'm a believer. It took a while, but he's around. Yeah. (laughs) Glad to know that you're doing more and more every year. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Tom Tracy. Dr. Paul Klaus is Medical Director of Mayo Clinic's Hyperbaric and Altitude Medicine Program. Thanks again. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how cold cap therapy can prevent chemotherapy-related hair loss. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Alzheimer's disease is a difficult diagnosis, but Dr. Ronald Peterson has great hope for the treatment of the disease. 
think it still is an exciting time to be involved in Alzheimer's disease research. Researchers continue to learn more about Alzheimer's disease and the many factors that contribute to it. This knowledge may lead to new treatments that likely won't cure the disease, but they may help people live longer and better with it. So I don't think we're going to eradicate it. We don't do that with heart disease. But if I'm going to have a heart attack at 72 and that can be pushed back to 78, that's a big deal. So if we can pushback, say, cognitive impairment from early 70s to late 70s, that's hugely important. Dr. Peterson says a realistic hope is that one day Alzheimer's disease will become a condition for which there will be effective preventive strategies and treatment options, options that will help preserve quality of life. And in other news, is it possible to brush your teeth effectively with a manual toothbrush? Sure. However, an electric toothbrush can be a great alternative to a manual brush, especially if you have arthritis or other conditions that make it tough to brush well. An electric toothbrush's bristle movement might even help you remove more plaque from your teeth and improve your gum health. If you use an electric toothbrush, make sure it's comfortable to hold and easy to use. Your dentist might suggest a model with a rotating oscillating head or a head that uses ultrasonic pulses to move the bristles. Other features such as adjustable power levels, timers, and rechargeable batteries are optional. Follow the manufacturer's instructions about when to replace the head to make sure the toothbrush continues to work effectively. Whether you choose an electric toothbrush or a manual toothbrush, remember that's what's most important is daily brushing and flossing. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Getting diagnosed with cancer is bad enough. But then, if you're like a lot of people, you need to have chemotherapy to help control it. And chemotherapy has some unpleasant side effects, no <laughs> doubt about it, as you well remember, I'm sure, Tracy. Back <laughs> That's in quite an understatement, Dr. Yeah. Shives. <laughs> and yours was what, 20, how many years ago? Almost 30 years ago. Good for you. Well, one of the biggest concerns for people undergoing chemotherapy treatment is the thought of losing their hair. Was it a big deal for you? It sure was. It was very traumatic. And this, I think, is especially true for women. Because you and I both know guys who uh, shave their heads because they think it looks cool and, yeah. and they're buff. And actually, for a lot of guys, it does look pretty good. But you've never seen a woman intentionally shave her head, have you? Not lately, no. Well, hair loss during cancer treatment can take an emotional toll on the patient. And some have described it as a, as a signal to the whole world that you've got cancer. And I can see why. Mayo Clinic is now using a new technology that helps prevent hair loss during chemo treatments as an option. It's called cold cap therapy, and it involves wearing a special cap set at very cold temperatures that protects a patient's hair follicles from the toxic chemotherapy and hopefully... Your hair won't fall out. Joining us by phone from Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, to discuss how cold caps work is medical oncologist Dr. Sarah Chumsry. Welcome to the program, Dr. Chumsry. It's nice to meet you. Hi. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, thanks for calling in. So I bet you've got a lot of uh, women patients who love you. <laughs> uh, yes, I believe so. Um, <laughs> now that we have the cold cap um, treatment available for patients who are on chemotherapy, it is making my life much easier um, um, in order to um, um, tell them to go on and get the chemotherapy. Are you going to lose your hair when you have chemotherapy? Are there there's some drugs that does not or that are worse than others? Where are we right. at with that? 
So most of the adjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer actually cause almost 100% hair loss. Hmm. Um, depend on the regimen. So most of the our second and third generation regimen is more effective uh, for breast cancer treatment. It's actually cause almost 100% hair loss. And why does it happen? Why do you lose your hair when you have chemo? So um, chemotherapy um, kill rapid dividing cells, including um, cancer cells, but it also causes collateral damage to other normal cells, including the hair follicle cells that um, because hair growth, um, uh, the hair follicle grow constantly, and that's also get affected by chemotherapy. So hair, uh, it affects that. What other parts of the body does it affect? Right. So most of the time, um, as chemotherapy, kill rapid dividing cells, hair follicles get affected, um, and some other um, dividing cells, including cells in the marrow, um, like the blood cells, and also some of the epithelial lining in GI tract also can get affected. But we have, we actually have come a long way in dealing with some of the side effects of chemotherapy. We're doing really well with controlling the nausea. We have multiple medication that can help control blood count and help with the white blood cells, like growth factor support. But until now, uh, uh, hair loss is one of the most dreadful side effects of chemotherapy that we haven't been able to control. So tell us how or why the cold cap works. Um, so cold cap works by, uh, uh, um, uh, so basically it applies the cold to the scalp. Um, so when we give chemotherapy to patient, chemotherapy only floating around, circulating around in the um, patient's body um, only a couple of hours, and then after that it clears up from their system. Um, so cold um, cap works by applying the cold, which causes uh, vasoconstriction, and it helps limit how much blood flow um, to the hair follicle, and it helps preserve um, hair follicle that way. Oh, so the blood vessels constrict, so the chemotherapy doesn't actually get to the hair follicles. Right, that is correct. That is correct. And does this work all the time, and for every agent that you use? I mean, is it uh, highly successful? Right. So if you look at the study that was published earlier in JAMA earlier this year, that was a um, two randomized controlled trial that um, uh, randomized the patient, um, a two to one to um, two part of the patient uh, had the cold cap and the other uh, one part did not receive cold cap. So those patients that did not receive cold cap actually uh, has zero percent of patient that was able to retain their hair with the anthracycline and taxin-based um, adjuvant chemotherapy that we commonly use in breast cancer. But among patients who receive cold cap, up to 70 or almost seven, um, up to almost 70% of patients actually was able to retain their hair more than 50%, so not to the point that women would have to wear a wig or cover their head. Um, so it's not 100%, but um, majority of patients was able to retain their hair. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty good. Do you ever have a, uh, any patients where you, you put the cold cap on and they say, ooh, I can't stand that. Stop. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'll, I'd rather the, lose my hair. Those are the Florida patients. <laughs> <laughs> so most of my lady that um, uh, use the cold cap, they are actually very, very dedicated and they want to keep their hair. So the majority of them was able to um, keep their cap on. Um, if you look at the study, the, the discontinuation rate is actually um, – quite low, and most of the um, uh, side effects or adverse events is usually just grade one or two, usually mainly the headache and some of the skin um, irritation, but most of them are it's actually very well tolerated, um, especially uh, now that we use the cooling um, system, which constantly keeps the temperature constant compared to um, in the old day where we used to use the 
Um, there's also other uh, rental cold cab that you can get um, from um, several um, places um, that you have to keep it in the um, dry ice. Oh. That right. So that's um, and then you have to keep constantly changing it every 15 minutes. So every every 15 minutes when the um, the cap gets thawed and it gets warmer, and then you constantly have to keep changing it. So my patients that use those old systems usually uh, describe that they get this um, ice cream headache every 15 minutes and mm. they have to change the cap. But with our um, the new system that we have, they constantly keep the temperature constant. It's actually uh, very well tolerated by patients. A lot of patients love this system. Um, and it um, has less hassle that they have to go and get the dry eyes. I made that crack about Florida, but how cold is cold? What is the temperature of this ice cap? Right, so the temperature is about 3 degrees Celsius, so 37 degrees Fahrenheit, so hmm. kind of comparable to being in the uh, Minnesota. refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> not, not <laughs> It is that cold in Minnesota at some point. Yes, yes. <laughs> like 37 a day. So how much does this cost and does insurance cover it? Um, I think some of the insurance started to um, consider um, scalp cooling system like um, Aetna started to consider um, covering um, these kind of systems. And I heard that um, some of the states, like Massachusetts and Connecticut, already had a, a public policy that insurance company has to provide partial coverage for these kind of scalp uh, processes. Um, but um, as of now, um, in Florida, uh, we charge about about four hundred dollar per session per treatment, uh, and, and that's the, the the base price that we have right now. Yeah, so not cheap. But so hopefully, more and more insurance companies will cover this because the women, I can understand, really want to keep their hair home. Right. We've been learning about cold cap therapy from Dr. Sarah Chumsri, a medical oncologist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Chumsri. Thank you for having me. Yep, thanks, Dr. Chumsri. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about Mayo Clinic's new transatlantic partnership. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, recently the Mayo Clinic announced a transatlantic partnership. And they're teaming up with Oxford University in England and the Oxford University Hospital. The goal of this partnership is to bring together these two global leaders in healthcare to to do several things. One, to improve patient care. Two, make scientific discoveries. And three, to educate the healthcare providers and researchers of the future. Sounds like a good idea. Well, I hope so. It's a pooling of resources. Two minds are better than one. And hopefully, two highly respected medical institutions are better than one as well. Here to explain how this partnership will work is the medical director for the collaboration, Dr. Stephen Cassavy, and his administrative partner, Mr. John Osborne. Welcome to the program, both of you. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Cassavy, Mr. Osborne, so good to have you both. And we obviously are interested to hear about this partnership. And first of all, Mr. Osborne, how did it, how did it come about? So about two years ago, we were approached uh, by a representative of the UK Department of International Trade saying that they had a uh, a group from Oxford who was interested in approaching a U.S. healthcare institution for an interesting collaboration that they wanted to explore. My responsibility within Mayo Clinic is our international activities in the UK, and so took the initial phone call, uh, met one of our now collaborators, uh, a, a 
endocrinologist, reproductive endocrinologist uh, by the name of Enda McVeigh, who had been very successful in starting private uh, healthcare clinics in the UK and abroad. And his idea was a collaboration between Oxford University, the NHS Hospital Trust, and a U.S.-based institution to try something new in private healthcare in the U.K. and thought that an alignment of academic centers such as Mayo Clinic and Oxford would be uniquely positioned uh, to really make a difference and to try something different in their market. So over the past two years, we've been talking about how we would make it work and have finally come to uh, a being able to announce our relationship. I guess the answer to the question why Oxford is because they contacted you. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and it's it's hard to think of a better and potentially more respected partner in the academic medical world and in the academic world than Oxford University, uh, which has been one of the most respected uh, and, and probably highest rated medical schools uh, in the world for the past several years. So I thought that the combination of their intellectual history, their intellectual capability uh, and their academic expertise was a very good marriage for our own uh, three shielded practice. Is this, as far as you know, the first collaboration of its kind between uh, two countries uh, with an ocean in between? <laughs> no, actually, Mayo's had a fairly long-standing relationship with the Karolinska Institute uh, in Sweden, um, which has had ongoing research collaborations over many years. This is the first relationship um, that we've undertaken that will not only have an academic component, but will also have a patient care component, uh, as we're working with Oxford to develop a, a joint clinic in London uh, to leverage our mutual expertise uh, and develop new ways of working in that environment. So it's not just a research partnership. There's other work that's going to be done together as well if you're going to establish a clinic. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, it's going to include the three shield activity that Mayo Clinic is familiar for being involved in, education, research, and patient care. And so on all three of those fronts, there's opportunities for this commitment for collaboration between these two global brands, as you put it, uh, Tom. It's really a unique, uh, singular opportunity to have these two groups come together and commit to working together for the betterment of patient care. So tell me, or tell us more about Mayo Clinic's presence in England. You said there will be patient care. There's going to be an actual hospital or a clinic that patients can go to? Yeah, I have the privilege and honor of being uh, chosen as the medical director for uh, what will be a patient care facility in London, in the heart of, our, of the London Medical District, which will be a unique place to get your care because it will bring together the expertise of a, of a centuries-old uh, and vibrant, uh, innovative group like Oxford University and Oxford University Hospitals, as well as the North American brand of Mayo Clinic that has been working its uh, healthcare pathway for the last 150 years, bringing those two together in the heart of London uh, to look at, uh, to start working on uh, innovative, protocol-driven, evidence-based diagnostics and screening will be the first step in, the, in what will likely be a larger uh, footprint in the London area, but it will begin with just with, with that as a facility in the heart of the medical district. So what's the most important thing that Oxford hopes to be able to learn from Mayo and vice versa? I think that's still to be determined. I think we have put two... Uh, great entities together, and the opportunity for that 
joining together of these two very important groups provides the catalyst for great collaborations, not only in direct patient care, but also in research and as well as in, in educating future providers. So you're going to have a male Oxford clinic uh, in London? Yes. And, and what, who will you see? I mean, what what patients might qualify to go to this high powered clinic in the middle of uh, London? Well, it's a good it's a good question. I think uh, initially this is going to be patients. It'll be outside of the National Health Service providing care to patients who uh, feel the the need for coordinated care, and I think that's what this group uh, and this venture will bring. Is something that uh, we've we've seen is is potentially a gap that we can fill highly coordinated collaborative care uh, in screening and diagnostics. So if, if patients see themselves in that, in that uh, need, this is the place that they can get that care. And what about research? How are you going to collaborate on research? So we've identified a number of areas of mutual interest and mutual expertise, um, individualized in precision medicine uh, and and breaking new barriers in clinical genomics uh, is an area that both institutions have been working very hard at. Uh, innovations in regenerative medicine um, have been uh, both uh, both institutions have invested heavily in. So we think that there will be initial collaborative research in both of those spaces. Um, we see additional opportunities in uh, cancer medicine, uh, both from a diagnostic and a therapeutic perspective, uh, as well as uh, new approaches to managing chronic conditions uh, and how we can leverage technology and data to best help uh, advance uh, those that patient's care uh, in potentially a less resource-intense environment. Well, let's talk about the education component. What is that going to involve? Well, I think there's a, there's two great educational institutions, and so there will be obviously a give and take of, of both uh, students and faculty and an opportunity to gain access from uh, selfish from our side to a broader uh, academic uh, portfolio that Oxford University provides. When does the collaboration begin? Yeah, when do we get started? Well, we've already got started. The the, uh, the legal agreements have all been signed. Now it's the <laughs> it's the time to roll up our sleeves and make these things actually happen. And that's what John and I have been doing. You have to pack your bags and head to London. We do occasionally, but we'll still be <laughs> both John and I will still be centered out of uh, oh, Rochester, really? Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I'll still be doing my thoracic surgical cases here. But you get to be the director of that. Yes, program. it's a, it's an, another responsibility to take on, but it's a, it's an exciting one. I think it will be good for our patients and, and for Mayo Clinic and Oxford University. So they're not going to send you there and never bring you back. That's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good thing. We've been talking about the new Mayo Clinic-Oxford partnership with Dr. Stephen Cassavy. He is the medical director of the program and also a thoracic surgeon at Mayo. And we've also been joined by Mr. John Osborne, who is the administrator of the program. Thanks so much to both of you for Thank being you. with us. Thanks. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. Las Vegas, thanks for listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on News Talk 840 AM, KXNT Radio. Thanks to our St. Louis listeners tuning in on KXFN AM 1380, The Pulse. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.